many of us are looking forward to spring. I, for one, am grateful for a relatively mild winter. Nevertheless, I'm ready for some warm weather and some outdoor activity. This season is also the last semester of school for most uh, high schoolers. Or it's the middle of a, a second semester for students in whatever year of college. And for juniors and seniors in high school, or for young people at any stage of college, here's the reality. You are finding, or you're going to find over the next weeks and months, that there are many people who love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. And there's no shortage of folks who will offer you their sage wisdom about what it is you should do. By the time you're a junior in high school, you start to get the questions from well-meaning people. So what do you think you want to pursue? What are you going to do with your life, sometimes accompanied with a suggestion? And the desired answer to those questions, what do you think you're going to pursue, what do you want to do with your life, the desired answer is a specific, mapped out plan for your career. But usually the real answer is, when I'm praying about it, or I haven't settled on anything yet. And the further you get along in college, the more pressure there is to have a definitive answer. So you're tempted to make something up that, that sounds good. And this entire ritual of asking about a plan and trying to formulate a map for the rest of your life, especially in high school and early college, is at best a waste of time. And at worst it sets a very dangerous precedent for years to come. It can be a colossal waste of time because the truth is 50 to 70% of students change their majors at least once. And most will change majors at least three times before they graduate. And so asking what you're going to do and putting pressure on a young person to say, I need to know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, isn't reality. It doesn't happen for most. And it can set a dangerous precedent because the underlying question and in turn our attempts to answer it, underlying the question and our attempts to answer it is a false assumption. And you hear this false assumption many, many times over the next several months if you're a young person in that situation. Young people are encouraged to quote Whatever you do, follow your dream. Or reach for the top. Or do what you love. In the words of Paul Harvey, take your hobby, make it your job, and you'll never work a day again in your life. Now, did you know that these bromides are empty, just empty words? For the vast majority of people in the world. And you can know that you are not dispensing biblical advice. If what you are saying does not apply to well over half the people on earth today. And upwards of 90% of people at other times in history. The fact of the matter is, for most of human history and still in most places in the world today. People simply work to subsist, to survive. 
You and I are blessed to live in the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind. Have you ever just stopped to think about that? You put it all together, and you, just commoners like us, live at the most, in the most prosperous nation in history. And yet here are the facts, even for Americans. A 2007 survey found that Americans hate their jobs more than ever before, with fewer than half saying that they're satisfied. And this echoes an earlier study, just about a year prior, that said more than four out of five U.S. workers do not have their dream jobs. Now, most of these are people who were told. When they graduated from high school, when they went into college, follow your dream, reach for the top. Put your hobby, make your hobby your work. You'll never work again a day in your life. And now for all of the years and decades since that time, they've been chasing that elusive and false dream regarding their career. And so, they desire something that they're never going to find. And it all started very early on. In the words of those great theologians, Bachman Turner Overdrive, you get up in the morning from the alarm clock's warning. You take the 815 into the city. There's a whistle up above and people pushing, people shoving. And the girls who try to look pretty. And if your train's on time, you can get to work by 9. And start your slaving job to get your pay. But if you ever get annoyed, look at me, I'm self-employed. I love to work at nothing all day. I just got to tell you a quick story about that. I drive my girls to school in the morning, and my girls happen to go to a school called Intercity. And this year, they changed their start time to 8.15. And the last song that the girls hear before they go to their day is taking care of business. And when we get to the part that says, uh, take the 8.15 into the city, I say, take the 8.15 to inner city. And I laugh uproariously. <laughs> and my teen daughters look at me like, little man, <laughs> we're glad you're here, but you really need to get a life. <laughs> now, there's all of this high-sounding rhetoric. Follow your dream. Reach for the top. Make your hobby your job. You'll never work a day in your life. And if any of that has actually worked out for you, I'm glad for you, and you should be extremely grateful. But if you want to not simply give bromides to young people, but rather if you're interested in giving a biblical perspective to them, then what we ought to do is look at what God says about this extremely important matter of work and career. And if we do that, it will apply to those young people no matter where they live, and in no matter what phase of life they are in. And we had a message on this about 18 months ago. We were going through the book of Proverbs. And if you missed that, or if you want to re-listen to that, I might encourage you to do that on our website, October 24 of 2010. October 24, 2010, you can find the message on our website. It was about work, and I made four points at, at that time. That work is not the curse that God placed on man. 
Many people mistakenly think that that work is part of the curse. After the fall into sin, God says to Adam, because you have done this, you are now going to till the, the garden. But he would already been given that responsibility to care for and cultivate the garden before sin. Man was supposed to work before the entrance of sin. The curse is not work. The curse is now the difficulty of the work. The second point I made was that because of sin, we are no longer motivated in our flesh, in our sinful nature. We're no longer motivated to do what we do for the pleasure of God. And so we don't work for the pleasure of God. We see it as a necessary evil. I need it in order to do what I want, but it's an obstacle to doing what I want as much and as often as I'd like, and so I need this job, but I hate this job. And I made a third point. You hate your job because you want too much from it. You're expecting way too much out of your career. Your career was never intended to be your life. And if you say, but I don't hate my job, I love my job. The fourth point I made was, you love your job because you want too little from life. So I encourage you to go back and and listen to that. We won't repeat all of that. But the truth is we focus too much on what we're doing when the most important matter is not what we do. Hear this, friends. It is not what we do. It is for whom we do it. The most important matter with every task you perform and I perform is not what I'm doing. It's for whom I do it. And if we focus on for whom we do it, it will in turn affect how we go about it. And so apart from the graduation bromides and the tired advice from others, what does the Bible say about our work? And specifically, what does it say about for whom we work? Whatever that work is, whether housework or homework, or metal work, or office work, or whatever it is. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this important issue. Father, you know how we struggle with the things that you have assigned to us in a fallen world. Our perspective is often distorted, and it needs to be cleared up. We need to have a clear view of what you have called us to do and why you have called us to do it so that we can do it in a way that expresses the joy of the Lord and pleases the Lord who has called us to that task. And so, Lord, we ask your help then as we look at your word on this important issue of our vocation, our calling, our work. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse number 5 of Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Now, we're going to apply what is said in verses 5 through 9 to the employee-employer relationship. And I hope you'll see why it is that we do that in just a bit. But I want to make just some comments about the fact that there is this mention of slavery and masters and slaves obeying their masters. How is it that the Bible can tell us to obey 
our masters. Since we have grown up, all of us, in a nation where slavery has been abolished, and slavery is abhorrent to us, and here the Bible is talking about slaves obeying masters. How can that happen? Let me just remind you of a little bit of the time period in which the New Testament was written. Slavery was universal in the ancient world. It was everywhere. A high percentage of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. It's been estimated that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And slaves constituted the workforce in the empire. But here's what most people don't know. Servants included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but included educated people as well, like doctors and teachers and administrators. Slaves could be inherited, they could be purchased, they could be acquired in settlement of bad debt. Prisoners of war were commonly slaves. So it is the case that those who were servants and slaves were treated as property. They were bought and sold. And I'm not condoning the system that the Roman Empire had, but I am telling you it was a system that is a bit different than what most of us, most of us think of. So slavery was, was very common in the, in the Roman Empire, and that is why the, the Bible speaks to it. And as, as well, the Bible speaks to slavery in a way that simply tells slaves and tells slave owners how it is they're to behave. Now, why is that? Why is it that you don't have a verse in your Bible that says slavery is wrong, it needs to be abolished? You will look in vain for such a verse. That surprises many people. The New Testament does not condemn slavery, but it doesn't condone it either. And I want to give you a few reasons for that, just very quickly. One reason that the New Testament does not call for the abolition of slavery is because Christians were powerless. To write a letter as we're reading the letter to the church at Ephesus and to say abolish slavery would have been meaningless. Christians did not have political power to, to undertake that. And further, not only were they, were they powerless, but they were in a situation such that slaves could be set free and often were set free. In fact, it's estimated that millions of slaves, just prior to the time of Christ, were set free. And there was a system for setting slaves free, as often happened in New Testament times. This is why you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writing and saying to slaves, if you can obtain your freedom, do that. And he hints very strongly to Philemon. You saw the, you know, the little one-chapter book in your New Testament by that name, Philemon? Philemon was a slave owner, and he had a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul strongly hints to the slave owner that you ought to grant freedom to your, to your slave. So many were, were granted freedom. And then further, the reason, a reason that you don't find the abolition of slavery in the New Testament is because Conditions for slaves were improving during the first century. Christianity had something to do with that. But legislation that, that we've been able to obtain from Roman emperors eased conditions for slaves and made it all the easier for them to be, 
to be freed. Now, when I say all of that, I'm not suggesting slavery was a good system. I'm simply trying to help you as you look at this now to see why the Bible mentions slavery and why it doesn't immediately say abolish it. Now, what verse 5 of Ephesians 6 does say is, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And I want you to see that slavery was viewed from the perspective of Paul who wrote this as every other task we undertake in life, namely, that we are to see it as something we render as to the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 5, Obey your earthly masters. But then at the end of verse 5, it says, do this as you would obey Christ. And then each of the verses from verses 5 through 9, each of those verses mentions the Lord, the Master, Christ. And so in verse 6, you're slaves of Christ. And in verse 7, you do what you do as if you are serving the Lord. In verse 8, you're trying to receive reward from the Lord. And then in verse 9, masters are told to remember that they have a master, the Lord himself. And so Christians are to pursue their work, their task, whatever it is, as unto the Lord. And that applies, now hear this, that applies to the employee-employer relationship just as much as it does to any task we undertake. And so as we look at these principles then, don't think of slavery and masters as much as think of the task that God has called you to. And anyone who is in authority over you, this passage is going to tell us how to pursue the work and how to relate to them. And so I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, Christians are to have a distinct work ethic. And that distinct work ethic is to in include work that is reverent. Our work should be reverent work. Verse number 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And then it goes on to, it, it says earthly masters, but then at the end of verse 5 points us to our ultimate master, the Lord. And so as we obey those that are in authority over us in an employment situation, we are not merely obeying them, but the Bible is telling us we are obeying Christ. And so this respect and fear is not a cowering obedience before those who are our authorities, but rather it is a reverence for the position that the individual holds and ultimately a reverence for the Lord who has placed them and us in that position. This is what Romans 13 teaches about government. That the powers that be are ordained of God. 1 Peter chapter 2 teaches the same thing about governmental authorities. And then the same thing is true now of employers. And those who are in authority over us, we we revere their position even if we don't respect them personally, which is often the case, isn't it? First Peter chapter 2, the Bible tells us, tells slaves actually, to obey their masters and then says, not only those that are kind and considerate, but also those that are harsh. And so even if we do not respect the person, we respect the office that the person has. 
And ultimately in doing so, we are respecting the Lord who has placed us in that situation. Our work is to be reverent work. And so 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I don't have it on the screen, so I encourage you to just jot this down. 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Here's why. So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. The way you work has an effect on the testimony that you hold for Christ. And then it goes on to say, Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they're to serve them even better. Because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. So if you are blessed to be in a situation where you have a a Christian boss, you don't take advantage of that fact. You serve with all diligence as if you are serving the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it. Not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence. Now notice this fear and trembling, this reverence. It says in Colossians 3, sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And so we have a distinct work ethic. And that distinct work ethic includes work that is reverent. Reverent for our earthly boss. And reverent ultimately because of the Lord who has placed them and us in that position. Now let me give you a phrase that's been helpful to me over the years. As I have had to work a work a day job. I remind you of this from time to time but some of you haven't been here. But I've not always had the cushy job of being a pastor. I really had to work for a living at one time. And for 20 years I worked in the work a day world. So I know what that is like. I've had all sorts of different managers and bosses, some good, many not so good. I've had to face the very things that I'm talking to you about, that God's Word addresses for each of us. So I know whereof I speak from experience. And this phrase has been helpful to me. It is respectful appeal. That we always have the right of respectful appeal to those who are in authority. And so if you see something amiss, if they're doing something wrong, something that you don't agree with, you have the right and you ought to exercise respectful appeal. And so you go and you make that appeal and you make your case and you do so respectfully, reverently. And if they don't take your advice, now you serve with all that you can as unto the Lord, whether they take your advice or not. We see Paul doing this in the New Testament. Paul had, would be hauled before governmental authorities on trumped-up charges for doing nothing other than preaching the gospel. And yet, how do you find him in Acts chapter 26 speaking to a Roman governor? Respectful appeal. This is the way Christians pursue their work. We do it reverently. But secondly, this passage tells us that our work should be not only reverent, but it should be pure as well. It says in verse number 5, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with, and then the phrase is, sincerity of heart. 
that is with integrity, without hypocrisy, without ulterior motives. I am not simply doing this job for the pay I get. (laughs) I'm doing this job because it is a task ultimately assigned to me by God. And I do it as unto the Lord in sincerity, in purity of heart. Now, the third characteristic of Christian work goes along with that then. If I'm doing it as unto the Lord in sincerity of of heart, it's going to mean thirdly that my work is going to be honest work. Our work should be reverent and pure, but also honest. Verse 6 says this, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Honest work. Not cheating the employer. If I'm being paid for eight hours of work, then I work for eight hours. I don't take their stuff. I don't use their time. I do it honestly because ultimately I am not doing it for them. Ultimately I'm doing it for the Lord. And the employee, and let us all be honest, we've all done this, who is looking to see if the boss is watching. The Christian employee who does that is forgetting that our ultimate boss is always watching. The Lord sees us at all times. And we will give an account for how we use the resources that God entrusted to us, including the gifts and the time that we put into the work he's assigned to us. How do I know this? Matthew 25. Matthew 25 in Jesus' parable of the talents. I preached this at the first of this year, last month, to prepare us for the coming year, to use the gifts and abilities that God has given us with all of the gusto that he he gives us and energy that he supplies. And Jesus, you remember, told the story of giving various amounts of money to be invested for the master. And then there was an accounting for that. And those who invested wisely, his verdict was, well done, good and faithful servant. But then those, for the servant who did not, here was his verdict. You wicked, lazy servant. You see, even when the earthly boss is not looking, our ultimate boss sees all. And we are to pro- approach our work not ultimately to please our earthly master, but to please our heavenly master. So our work should be reverent and pure and honest. And then the passage tells us our work should be, point D in your outline, enthusiastic work. Enthusiastic. I say that for this reason. The end of verse 6 says, When you work as you should, as unto the Lord, you are doing the will of God, and then notice the phrase, from your heart. And then verse 7 says, serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord and not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or free. So our work should be enthusiastic. Now, let's be honest. How many of us went about our work this past week enthusiastically? 
rather than just going through the motions, rather than just complaining about how little I'm paid, don't they know how much I'm worth? Don't they know I could find, I could do something else? Yes, they know that because you're not. Because <laughs> if you could, you would. So yeah, they already know that. But we think that. And so we're grumbling and we know that we should be in a better situation because we know we're more gifted than this menial job that I've been placed in. And God is saying, uh-uh, I have placed you there. And this is the venue in which you are going to show Christ and you're going to grow in Christ. And so go at your work enthusiastically with your whole heart, with nothing withheld, whatever your pay. You do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Christians have a different work ethic. Christian workers have a different work ethic. But I want you to note as well, it not only applies to Christian workers, but it also to Christian managers, Christian bosses, Christian owners. Because verse 9 tells us this. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Christians are to have a distinct work ethic, but also, I say in your outline, a distinct management ethic. We're going to see three things that that verse tells us about how Christians are to oversee those in the, the workplace. Before we look at those three, I want to dispel a commonly held myth that is out there. Have you ever heard it said? Perhaps you have said. You know, if someone manages people well, then people will want to work for that person. Have you ever heard that? If you manage well, then people will do well. You, you, ha you know that that biblically is not always true, right? How many, how many people in God's world, want to serve God? Very few, right? Let me ask you, does God manage well? I think he knows what he's doing myself. The fact that people don't want to serve God is not a reflection on God. It's a reflection on people. The idea that if you manage well, people will just throw themselves before you and want to follow you and will do good work. Sometimes that's true. It is certainly not always true. Now, this is in Detroit in a union town. And I know that's the union mentality. That if management knew what they were doing, then we would do a much better job. Look, I've been under a lot of managers, and I know lots of managers have no clue. But it simply does not follow that if you manage well, people will work well. The Bible, over and over again, has to deal with this issue of laziness and an unwillingness to work for what you get. The Bible deals with that. And we see it around us all the time. So, friends, I'm encouraging you, with every statement you make, every statement you hear, run that through the grid of biblical truth and ask yourself if it really holds. Now, God does address managers, bosses, owners. And Christians are to have a distinct management style. And that management style should be, I say in your outline, exemplary. Exemplary. 
That is, in the way that we manage, if we are in a management position, we should manage in a way that is an example to those that are under us, such that we demonstrate the qualities we want to see in them. That's what verse 9 is telling us. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. When it says in the same way, treat them in the same way that you want to see them behave. And so do you want to see them reverent and pure and enthusiastic and honest, all the things we have listed under point one? If you want to see all of that from them, then let them see that in you. Treat them in the same way that you want to see behavior from them. Christian management should be exemplary. And it should also be patient. Verse 9 says, do not threaten them. But rather, demonstrate forbearance. Patience with them. As they learn what it is they're to do, and you show them how they are to do it. Now, there are times where you have to fire somebody. I get that. Where somebody simply refuses to do is unwilling to do or perhaps unable to do, and thus they need to be in a different job. But take the time. A Christian master will take the time to be patient and forbearing with them, to make sure they understand what they're to do and are shown how to do it. And then Christian bosses and managers as well, thirdly, are to be conscientious. Conscientious. The word conscience is a compound of two words. Science means knowledge. Con means with. Conscience means with knowledge. And so my conscience, your conscience is bothered about something because we have knowledge. We are with knowledge that a particular thing is or may be wrong. And so our conscience bothers us with knowledge. And when I say conscientious here, here's what I'm saying. The last part of verse 9 says, you know, that is you have knowledge. Master, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. And so Paul appeals to what these masters, these bosses, these owners, what they know. You have this knowledge, now act upon this knowledge. Be conscientious. And what is it you know? That both the employee and you as the owner, manager, supervisor have ultimately the same master. And you are no better ultimately. Because you're in a different position, you are not better than that person who is under you. That's what the verse is saying. Both of you have the same master in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And just as the employee will be judged by God for the work that he has done, or failure to work as he should, so too a master will be judged for how he has supervised those entrusted to his care. Now you're going to go to work, Many, all of us are going to go to work in some fashion tomorrow. Some will go to school, they'll have work associated with that. Some of us will go to an office, others will go to a factory, others will work in the home. Ladies, you work in the home. If, you st if you're a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home wife, if you're a stay-at-home husband or dad, you work, your workplace is simply the home. And now this still applies 
that we work honestly and enthusiastically and purely and so on. All of us are going to go to our workplaces tomorrow. I want to leave you with just a few thoughts then as we seek to be exemplary, distinct Christians with our work ethic and exemplary in our management of those that have been placed under us. I want you to understand that you are never alone in your work. You see, one of the temptations for me when I worked in my computer uh, job was to daydream, to do church work, to let my mind drift to other things than what it is that I've been being paid to do. And part of that temptation for me was I was sitting facing a computer terminal. And I didn't like that. I like interacting with people. But there would be long periods of time where I wasn't interacting with people. It was simply a machine. And so as a result of that, I didn't want to do that. Just as an aside, you say, well, why in heaven's name did you go in the computer field if you don't like looking at a screen? Let me tell you something. I've had people say to me, you got a computer science degree, which I did. You must really love computers. No, I hate computers. It's the truth. I didn't get a computer degree because I love computers. I got a computer degree because they were hiring computer people, period. And I did not buy into the follow your dream, reach for the top, all the stuff. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something where I can make a living for my family. And I don't have to love what I'm doing, but I do have the responsibility to do what we're talking about here. I have to remember for whom I do it and then do it in a way that is consistent with that. And one of the temptations is when you are in a position as a housewife, as a programmer, as a mechanic, whatever it is, and you're not interacting with people, your mind can drift off of the task. Remember this, you are never alone. Christ is always with you. And Christ is always there, not just looking over your shoulder to see you do something wrong. That's not our Lord. But rather, He is with you to help you and to commune with you. And I learned over time to talk to Jesus while I was at work. And when nobody else was around, remembering that He's around. And then to remember the work to which he has called me so that I can now do it enthusiastically. Remember this as well, that your reward is not now. You're never alone. And your reward is not now. Your reward is not your job. Your reward is not your pay. Your reward is the smile of the Savior who says, well done. And if you bought into, when you were a young person, the idea that you're to find your fulfillment in your job, then you're, you, you have found, have you not? It ain't happening. And I'm here to tell you, your reward is not now. God says your reward is not now. And when we do that, when we remember that we do this before our God, we are never alone, and we understand that what we do now is for reward later, then any reward we get now, we look on with greater gratitude, right? I'm not looking for my fulfillment in this. And now when I receive reward in the form of a paycheck or an attaboy or you're doing a good job, it means all the more. 
because I don't work for that. It's simply a bonus that goes with that. I want to encourage you, housewife, metal worker, office worker, manager, to remember that in your job you're never alone and your reward is not now so that we can show distinct work ethic and an exemplary management style in whatever position God has called us to. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for your sovereign control over our lives and placing us in the various positions you've assigned to us. Lord, your word has a radically different perspective on the vocations and the circumstances that you place us in. It's radically different from what the culture tells us. And yet so often, Lord, I get caught up, we get caught up in listening to the false assumptions that underlie so much that is said about career and vocation. Lord, help us to see it clearly from your perspective. And whatever you have placed us in, help us to put our hand to it with all the energy and all the ability that you give to us because we are working ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us then to, to translate that into a display of Christ-likeness in our attitudes as we engage in respectful appeal, in the way we talk to our co-workers about those who are over us, in the way we complain. Yea, Lord, keep us from complaint. Help us to show Christ. And then, Lord, in difficult situations, in situations where we have managers and bosses who are trying on us, help us to see this as your means to do, develop Christ, greater Christ-likeness in us. Those of us who are called to lead and to manage, help us to do so humbly. Help us to do so in a way that recognizes that we ultimately have our master to answer to. And to lead in a way that we show what we want to see in others. Lord, as a result of this, we pray that your name, your character would be exalted in our lives. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.